0: Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles Podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. All right, everybody, here we go again. I say, hello, how are you? This week Uh, My chair does too He squeaks a lot You probably hear this on the podcast I'll introduce him real quick That's him Uh, Hopefully you guys had a great weekend Uh, We had an absolute blast Uh, Took the family to the Iowa State Fair This weekend And my daughter got a little bit Of uh, education on nature We went into uh, uh, A building where They did, uh, like, live births. They had uh, pigs being born. They had cows being born. They had chickens being born. And we were able to watch, live, in person, uh, a cow uh, drop a calf right there in front of, like, 200 people. And I had seen it several times before uh, on my grandpa's farm growing up, but my wife had never seen that. And the reaction my daughter had was priceless, just like a, whoa, what's going on? And then you had to educate her, that's where babies come from, that kind of thing, and uh, so that was really cool to see, we ate a lot of different foods on a stick at the Iowa State Fair, and then we went to a hotel that had a mini water park in it, and uh, my daughter is a fish, my son, he doesn't really know the whole water thing yet if he, how he feels uh comfortable wise but uh we did that and then we went to a family gathering uh, today which is sunday you guys are listening to this on a monday and had a blast my daughter i'm very proud of her uh had her very first emergency room visit she was playing on some uh equipment at the park fell cut her chin open I for sure thought we were going to have to go and get stitches. The We got there. Doctor said, eh, nope, we're just going to glue it shut. So uh, he squeezed the wound closed, put the glue on it, and uh, we're back home. It's one of those weekends where I wish there was another day of the weekend. This is almost like every weekend, but just to recoup from the weekend before I, uh, before I, uh, go hit the cubicle lifestyle for another 40 hours. So that's what I did. Did not have, didn't do really any deer stuff. Um, this is a little premature, but I do, later this month into next month, some more exciting, cool things are going to be happening happening with this podcast outside of uh, the introduction to the Land and Legacy podcast um, that I just picked up. And uh, if you guys haven't heard the announcement already, I the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast is going to be absorbing the uh, Land and Legacy Hunting and Habitat Improvement uh, podcast. And I have already launched the first four episodes of that podcast. It's going to be on this RSS feed. So please be sure to check that podcast out. Uh, tons of great information for... All types of hunters, not just people who own or lease their own property. But tons of great info for all diehard, hardcore hunters. So please be sure and uh, check that podcast out. Uh, So now the whole goal is you got a little bit of the Nine Finger Chronicles. You got a little bit of Land and Legacy. And where I'm trying to head is the direction of an awesome, well-rounded rss feed with tons of great information for diehard sportsmen so there's that uh today's podcast we're going to be talking with a gentleman you know him he's the owner of bighorn outfitters he's been on the podcast before his name is dustin decrew and today we're going to talk about spot and stock hunting strategies um, now these are for mule deer but a lot of the principles that he's going to be sharing with us today can be used in north dakota south dakota wherever you're hunting whitetails as well so these spot and stock strategies are used for maybe any place that there's whitetail that don't necessarily have a place to put tree stands. So uh, he talks a lot about his process, the strategy that goes along with these spot and stock, spot and stock hunts. And I find it very interesting because someday I want to spread my wing wings and get into the uh, spot and stock game as well. Um, and, you know, there's always that chance that you're in a tree stand and you see a bedded buck and instead of trying to wait him out, maybe make a move on him. So uh, there's that option as well. So we got another kick-ass podcast coming today, but before we get into that, and it's something that I, I don't talk enough about, and that's Ozonics, right? They're a partner of this podcast, and I just want to share with you guys the moment, you know, there were several moments that led me to believe in the Ozonics unit, the in in the field ozone generator, but there was one specific moment I want to share with you Where it was the rut, I was hunting, um, this transition period that was right off of a corner of a CRP field, or a marsh, and a cornfield. And I saw this buck come upwind from me. And he looked to be a shooter from what I could tell. So I wanted to rattle, I, I, I grunted first, he didn't hear me. So I put the horns together and he heard me and he started coming in. And he did what a, a majority of all bucks who are coming in, unless they're really hot and heated and they're really rutted up and they're coming at like a frozen rope to you, this buck didn't do that. He scooped way downwind to me. To try to catch the scent of whatever was making that noise. And then he was going to probably J-hook into it. Or if he saw something. Because he, he didn't see anything from where I was at. I was in the timber. And he was walking the field edge on the opposite side of the field edge where um, I was at. And like I said, he, he took this big loop. And I didn't expect him to do that. So although I had a, a shooting lane to him. The closer he got. I realized this wasn't a buck that I was after. However, he was a four-year-old. I consider that mature. And he was smart, right? He came way downwind to try to catch the scent of whatever that was there. Had my unit, my Ozonics unit in the tree. And that buck did not wind me. And... It was one of those moments where I realized the reason I was not getting busted was the Ozonics unit. Now you guys can you know, you guys can think whatever you want to think about about this. But if you're the guy who's like me, who has very limited time in the field, and you want to make every opportunity count, and whether that opportunity is not getting busted by a group of does coming downwind of you, or you know you you're in a spot where something's trying to catch you from the back door, similar to the the experience that I just uh, talked with you guys about. This is one of those products where it definitely increases opportunities. And as we all know, the more opportunity, opportunities you have throughout the season, uh, the greater you know, chance of success. For me, I'm the kind of guy who in my life right now, I'm gonna hunt mature whitetails, uh, and that means for me it's four years, four years old buck or older. And uh, I truly believe that in Ozonics unit, uh, I mean it's not it's not a magic pill. You still have to know how to use it. You still have to uh, be um, active with it in the tree. So if the wind shifts, you have to shift. But this is one of those products that. I truly believe can make a difference in the amount of deer you're seeing and what happens in those instances where something's trying to you know, backdoor you. And uh, and I, I really think that Ozonics can, can do that for you. Now, Ozonics, right? Uh, I've already talked about why I like it, but here's why I think you should like it is because if you go to the Ozonics website, and ozonicshunting.com you can save $75 off of all orders over $400 and so that's basically a that's a that's like a 24% discount or something something like that $75 off of all orders over $400 Twenty-two or three or something like that. Twelve, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> that's dumb for me to say this, but seventy-five dollars off of all orders over four hundred dollars by entering the discount code at checkout. Nine fingers one seven. So that's the number nine followed by the word fingers one seven. No spaces. The number nine fingers one seven. And uh, you're gonna get seventy five dollars off of your purchase, and that is uh, off of your purchase over four hundred dollars. So that's definitely um, an HR two hundred unit, or if you want to go with the HR three hundred, please go check, go to the Ozonics website, learn about it, and then go buy one. Uh, If you got to save up for a season or two, it's definitely worth it. So uh, that's just my two cents. Obviously, these guys uh, are a partner of the podcast, so that means they pay me. So take, you know, it's one of those, not to go too deep into it, but it's one of those products, once you use it and have that moment in the tree stand where you're like, holy shit, this is awesome, and then you learn about ozone and how it destroys bacteria, Uh, you just put two and two together. So enough of the talk. Let's get into today's spot and stock episode with Dustin DeCrue. All right, on the phone with me now, Mister Dustin DeCrue. How you doing today, Dustin? I'm doing well, Dan. How are you? I can't complain. Uh, it's not so terribly hot in Iowa anymore, and uh, it's kind of these this past week has really got me itching for uh, for the season.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I understand that I'm feeling the same way. I'm, I'm ready to start hunting. You know, it's like, it's, uh, down that time when all of our, you know, our ranchers are cutting their hay again and we can start putting cameras on, on places where the deer and the antelope are going to be and stay there now
0: and, uh, setting blinds and doing all that fun stuff. Right. So for the people who don't know who you are, why don't you fill them in on where you live and what do you do for a living? Sure. Uh,
1: my name is Dustin DeCrew. So uh, I have a business partner, Rich Sweeney, and we own uh, and operate Bighorn Outfitters out of Buffalo, Wyoming. So North Central, Northeast Wyoming. Right. Um, we do, you know, pretty much all the all the big game hunts, some uh, Merriam turkeys and prairie dogs, and and uh, have a good time with it.
0: Right. So you and Bighorn Outfitters is a partner of this podcast. So kudos to you. Uh, thank you very much yeah. for for supporting the podcast. And uh, I tell you what, like I, of course, I, like I told uh, all the listeners, uh, I gave that hunt to my father in law. That rifle hunt, you know, and Mm-mm. he it when we gave it to him, he he like flipped out. He didn't even know how to react. It, it, he was blown away, and he is he is so excited to go on that hunt
1: that's awesome you know like that's the and i think we talked about this the last time a little bit but that's what you know makes this job enjoyable is is whenever you get people that are excited to do that and uh you know it's cool because we get to see most people you know when they go on an outfitted hunt you know it's it's uh we're seeing them at a good time they 're on vacation they 're hunting and uh, so it's it's really enjoyable i 'm really glad to hear that he 's excited we 're excited uh, to have you guys and uh, it's gonna, it's going
0: to be a good time
1: I assure you yeah
0: absolutely absolutely now you mentioned before we started recording that this time of year you 're busting your ass getting ready because you actually have clients showing up in a matter of days.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh they, so our season opens for archery antelope on the 15th. So guys show up on the 14th. So, um, you know, we kind of, we kind of wait a little bit, like I was talking about earlier is all, we got a lot of alfalfa fields and hay fields and that kind of stuff, but where those antelope are using, you know, where they're coming in and out of those fields changes when they cut their hay. So you got a bunch of guys cutting hay right now. So you don't want to set a blind, you know, and then have them cut that hay field and then all the antelope go to the other field. So we're kind of, it's like you'd like to get ahead of the game, but at the same time, it's just a waiting game and uh so we're to that point now, and we're setting blinds and got trail cameras running everywhere, and uh we're excited to
0: get going right so uh, based off the trail cameras you got you guys gonna have a good year you think
1: yeah I think it's I think it's gonna be a fantastic year, you know we were fortunate that the west side of the state got hammered pretty bad with a winner. And we really didn't, we got some snow, but, uh, looking at the mule deer and the whitetail and the antelope, uh, that are out there right now, it should be, uh, should be a phenomenal year. They've got some good antler growth and yeah, we're excited. Awesome.
0: Yeah. I I tell you what, I, I ended up having to cancel all the listeners know this already, but, uh, I ended up having to cancel my elk hunt because I got a kid coming September 28th, very poor planning, uh, on my part, (laughs) but, but both my wife and I are in an, an agreement now that there are going to be no more kids at all. So now well, I can start making good. those trips. I know. Now I can start making those Western trips, man.
1: That's perfect. That's yeah. perfect. Yeah. My, my timing was about the same. We've got one, uh, September 7th and one October 23rd last year. <laughs> so the uh, last year it was kind of funny. Uh, you know, Jen, my wife does all the cooking for all the clients. And when, I think we had like 12 or 13 people there at, at that particular time, it was a big group that wanted to come together. And so I had, I think we had one doe whitetail to shoot in that, that morning. And so I left it, you know, at daylight and I was like, honey, I'll be back by like, you know, eight. And, uh, cause that's, you know, shooting a doe with a rifles, not usually a, a day long endeavor. And, uh, so it was like, in this, uh, the girl I was with shot her dough. And, uh, I see my guy, one of my guides, I see his truck come bombing in down this dirt road. (laughs) And I was like, "Uh Oh, and I looked down and I had left my phone in the truck. (laughs) I was like, Oh, I'm the perfect husband. Like, right. Leave your (laughs) phone in the truck when your wife's going into labor. So, but I, uh, hauled, hauled butt to the hospital and walked in and I had blood on my pants and I'm wearing my you know, wearing my camo jacket. And the nurse just looked at me and shook her head. <laughs> I was like, sorry, I'm here though. So, but but, but I you made it in time, right? That timing. Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's all that absolutely. matters. And I think, I think Jen got the work done and I was able to go out again in the afternoon. So,
0: <laughs> so that was perfect.
1: <laughs> but, oh,
0: that's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, you're, uh, you're, yeah. Your job actually allows you to do that. Uh, like if I, if I came in late, if I, you know, came in late and then left again to go out to the timber, she'd be like, what the hell are you doing? Uh, uh-uh. uh-uh. right. Yeah. I have a, I have a built in excuse there. That's right. That's right. So, so did you, yeah. did you end up starting your business because you loved to, to, to hunt so much or was it more of a, Hey, I see an opportunity because you had some contacts and that's why you started an outfitter business, you know
1: I what happened was I guided for Scott and Angie Denny at Table Mountain Outfitters for several years, and uh at that time you know i I guess I went to school to for construction science, so I would ran commercial construction jobs and that kind of thing, and then I did my own construction gig in Wyoming for a little while, and then I said, you know i'm single i don't have any kids i'm going to go do what I want to do so I went and filmed for their t v show and and uh guided and then I met Jen and at that point in time, we got married and I was like, all right, I can't live on the road. I can't spend two months in Idaho, a month in Nebraska and three months in Wyoming. So we settled down up here and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And uh, my business partner, Rich, and I got together, you know, our families had known each other for for quite some time and he was working for an outfitter that was selling his business. And so uh, we kind of made that work and ended up purchasing the purchasing the business and then kind of have, have, uh, blown it up from the time we bought it. So nice. it's been, it's been good, but I guess to answer your question, yeah, it was, it was because, uh, you know, for one, I loved being outdoors all the time, but two, it was really cool to share those experiences with people that, you know, didn't have opportunities or didn't have mule deer, or antelope or elk running around where right. they were at. Right. Makes sense. So.
0: so how many, how many people are you, you know, typically come through your door, so to speak every year?
1: man uh to be honest i haven't even added it up but it's a lot <laughs> i mean we're talking you know um i don't know over the i mean if you had turkeys and prairie dogs and everything i don't know 150 175 guys nice nice
0: so man, so, so you have to be one organized mofo uh, throughout the year to make sure all these tags are in order, all these licenses, all these guys are coming in and out. Now everybody's got what they need for the hunt and, and, uh, and doing it for, you know, on, on basically full throttle for what, several months before and then probably after as well.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's realistically, you know, we're we're on August 15th, December 15th. Um, and then we do prairie dogs, backcountry fishing trips, which are pretty cool during the summer. And then uh, prairie dogs, and you know we shoot a bunch of turkeys in the spring. Awesome. So it is, you know. And then we get to do the, we do get to do a little bit of the show circuit. We try not to do a lot of it, but we go to the fun ones where I get to hang out with you at ATA, and, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Right.
0: So. Right. But. Cool. But yeah, it's wide open. Well, transitioning now uh we after our original podcast, I think this is your second time on, I believe now, and uh, so you're you're in the two timers club, but uh, we discussed having you on again, which is now, for a spot and stock type episode, and really kind of boiled down the spot and stock uh, uh, methodology for someone who has ever been. Interested in spot and stalking animals. And I think th- I, I liked where you were going with this because I felt that uh, spot and stalking, the principles of it can be used just about anywhere, uh, whether you're out west hunting antelope, Wyoming, whatever, uh, or uh, whitetail or mule deer, or if you're spot and stalking, let's say, a whitetail in Nebraska or in some river bottoms, or if you see, or, or hell, even if you're in Iowa, Illinois, Ohio, wherever. And you see one bedded down in a big CRP field, you might be able to use some spot and stock strategy there as well. So I'm right, like yeah. I'm like, hell yeah, let's do it. So and and you guys are basically forced to do it out there because you don't have a, a ton of trees uh to or you know especially with antelope and uh mule deer, and we'll get into all this, but so I guess I'm going to let you kind of uh, start it out. Um, Talk to us about maybe first of all, high level. What is spot and stock type hunting, and why is it? You know, why can it be beneficial? Sure.
1: Um, You know, like you were saying, out here, you know, primarily we're going to spot and stock mule deer and antelope. We do stock spot and stock whitetails too because our terrain allows it sometimes. Um, you know in September, um, but basically, you know from our end, what we're doing is we are either driving or hiking around and we're spending you know seventy percent of your time looking through your glasses um, or your you know or your uh spotting scope and basically, what we're doing is looking for an animal that that we think is uh you know fits the bill and from that point you know you're developing a pattern of you know are you going to go go in below them um are you going to go in above them what's the window and that kind of thing and and make a move and the cool part to me about that the spot and stock stuff is you know it's it's really if it doesn't happen it's because i didn't do my part mm-hmm. right you know it's not like well that, that i saw that big buck but he you know he never made it to within bow range of my tree stand. So right. this one, it really puts, you know, puts everything on you and, um, and, and leaves it in your hands to make the right calls. And, and that's uh that's kind of a cool deal.
0: And now so, you say that because a majority of the, the stocks that you go on are, are, are the animal is already maybe bedded or in a, a singular location. Yeah.
1: You know, for, like, I think, I think, I remember you had Justin Czar on, um, yeah. back in, I don't know, February, March or something, but he came on a hunt and I believe it was 15. And so, you know, most of the time, and I was telling him on the way out, I was like, I bet 90% of our mule deer, we shoot between 10 AM and 4 PM. And, right. you know, which kind of goes against like, you know, everybody's normal thinking of crepuscular animals is is you know well they're not active and you're like well that's that's exactly right that's the idea so but yeah we pretty much for the mule deer uh we're gonna watch him ideally we we watch him at daylight or find them you know sometime in the first hour after daylight and then if we when we find one we like we just basically stay on him and watch where he goes to bed um so that's kind of our primary our primary goal there is to find a buck and watch him bed
0: Okay. And is it typically that easy um that you're you're driving around the roads and you're 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 you know you just keep continue checking these spots that you probably identified before um you know the season even started uh, it, you locate an animal and then you watch it bed um so what happens at that point if you've located an animal and it uh, it's worth going after but you don't see it bed like it crests crests a ridge or it um, drops into a ravine or a coulee or something and, and you can't you can't see it actually bed. Do you still go after that animal?
1: Yeah, you know sometimes you do um, because sometimes that's your your option because from then you know like where we're hunting a lot of this stuff is it's uh, it's not real far from the top to the bottom. It might be you know a couple hundred yards you know, elevation wise, but it's pretty steep and there's lots and lots of, uh, rocky cuts and, um, bentonite wash banks and, you know, and so I would say, I would say at least half the time, if not more, um, of the bucks that you spot that are on their feet, they will go out of sight and whether or not you can see them bed, you know, is kind of a, kind of a toss up. Um, but so that definitely happens and, you know, Justin's hunt, the one where he actually killed the deer, uh, I guess there was a bone or die episode of it. Um, but basically we, uh, watched this deer at like 6 AM and we watched him for, I think it was four hours and he went into a big draw and we're like, perfect. He's in a draw right there. And, um, you know, he just, he just disappeared. And so from that point, what we ended up doing was going on the upwind side and making about a half mile loop. And we'd walk about 10 feet in glass down into the draw and walk 10 more feet and check in every sagebrush and everything we could see because we knew he was going to bed on the shady side. Right. So, so at about, I think it was noon, um, noon when we finally, we finally relocated him and he was bedded. He was bedded at the bottom of the bank, so kind of in the bottom of a dry creek bed. And I could see that the sunlight was hitting, like half of his body was in the shade and half of it was sunny. And so I told Justin, I said, we're not going to be able to make a play on this. And he's, you know, he's like, well, why not? And I said, because what what happens is usually, you know, they'll bed in the morning for two or three hours. But whenever the sun changes and gets on them, then they get up and move. And so that's exactly what that deer did. And he moved up into a draw that we couldn't see again. So we looped around and it just worked out. He was bedded in this big hole uh, in the shade and, and we were able to make it work. So, but yeah, that, that happens a lot. And that's definitely the hardest part of it is whenever you can't see him bed. You just got to sneak in there real slow and see what happens.
0: So you mentioned a lot of things here. We we talked about, you mentioned the wind, you mentioned the sun, uh, obviously the terrain, Break those down for us and you know, talk about why each one of those is important in a uh, you know, in a stock. Because for a whitetail hunter who is a tree stand, you know, we play the terrain where how the animals use the terrain, you know, and and yeah, right on a spot in stock, the animal is uh, you know, in one position like you kind of mentioned in one little area and you are having to use the terrain to move to that location. So it's almost like the roles have reversed at that point where you're mobile and the, the animal is not. So break all those down about, so you see, you see an animal or you know where this animal's going. Let's talk about what your thought process is on how you actually get yourself close enough for a bow shot.
1: Sure. Um, you know, the first, the first thing that I think about, you know, in that scenario is you find a deer, he drops in here. Um, the first thing I think about is the wind. Um, you know, no, no different than, than a whitetail hunter, even in a tree stand is saying, okay, the wind's coming this way. So that eliminates half the direction that I can get to him with. Um, you know, so then you say, okay, I can work from the, I can work from the east side, um, because we've got a west wind and then from there you know it goes into the sunlight's not as big of a deal until i get there but uh but the terrain so i'm going to say where i can go from you know one side and a lot of times what i do is if i have a really good idea you know within maybe five ten yards of where that deer is bedded I'll sit there and range a bunch of stuff like range that spot and then I'll range a bunch of landmarks around there that I think I might be able to get to. You know, so I can say, okay, I think that deer's bedded in that cut and you know, that big rock or that whatever that big sagebrush or whatever it is is forty yards from that cut. Okay. And so, you know, I I'm like, okay, if I can get to that sagebrush, you know, I know I'm gonna be in range. And you know, so that's that's kind of how I how I do the terrain part. But uh, I usually, you know, there's two. I guess there's two methods. Um, whenever you're when you find a buck, let's say he's bedded in that hole, right? So the easy one that everybody does is well, let's just go around behind him, and we're going to come up over the top, right? Because he can't see you, and um, which is a great idea, and it's a it works it works a lot, you know, to get close enough. But the problem is, is that you don't have a shot a majority of the time when you come in above them and they're bedded. Right. So a lot of times what, you know, what I, what I do now, and I find myself doing it more and more is I'm going to come in in their face and try to stay out of sight, um, to a point to where at least if he stands up, um, you know we're gonna have a crack at it right um or we're we're not gonna have him stand up and be able to see the top of his head you know um because we're too far above him or we're right above him to where you can't see anything shoot at gotcha so and there's i don't know that there's a, a right or a wrong way it's probably each situation determines that you know for each individual hunter but i do i find myself more and more trying to come in from pop up right in their face um, you know, or come in, come in, below them and throwing a rock up there, or doing something to get them to stand and then, you know, and then taking a poke. Right.
0: So, so then, you know, you mentioned kind of coming over the top of them. How do, how are these deer betting in these, are they betting with, okay, let me start over with that. Are, when these deer go to bed, are they mm-hmm. bedding similar to like a Midwestern where they're going to, they're going to kind of bed on the military crest of a downwind or a, and the wind's coming over top of their back and then they can see what they can't smell or is it completely different out there for, uh, no. yeah. Yeah. No, you're,
1: I mean, you're right in the, I guess what determines it like early season, um, You know, like in September, like when we start this stuff, September 1st, what really determines their bedding location more than anything else is the sun and the heat, right? Because it's not like they can go lay on this side that has little tree, you know, has some cover, but they're, they're not going to lay out in the sun, in the heat in the middle of the day. So their first priority is find a shady spot, right? Um, You know, and, and if the wind, I guess for them, I would imagine, you know, if the wind is coming over their back to, so they can smell what they can't see, then that's a bonus. But from my experience, it's definitely, you know, we're going to get into a shady spot, um, and hide out there. And if the wind is good, it's good. It's not, it's not. So that kind of helps too, you know, I mean, that helps the hunter because sometimes it does open up you know, the ability to get there from the easiest direction just because the, the wind is right.
0: So it's almost like they would prefer shade to get out of the heat and sun as opposed to having the best possible wind conditions for their nose.
1: Yeah. Yep. And you have to think too. So, and I tell people this about antelope, but, um, you know, mule deer, a whitetail's first sense, right? The one they use the most is what is their nose
0: yep
1: right like that's their their number one sense for protection um mule deer use their eyes more than their you know more than their nose, and people think they can't smell, which is a total farce they can um but they are so accustomed to being in that terrain to where they can see things and they can hear things right um you know a lot of times before they can smell it right so So they trust that sense, uh, their sense of sight, you know, before they – I guess they make that their priority before their nose. Right.
0: Okay. All right. Um, So then, um, you know, you've located them, and you're starting to put the stock on them. How are you using terrain – you know, elaborate a little bit on how you're using terrain to cut the distance between – where you last saw them or where you think they're at as opposed to, you know, you said, you, you mentioned, I got to, I got to start ranging um, landmarks and that's Mm going to tell me how far I need to go and how, you know, far I need to get to, to get a shot. How do you use the terrain to cut the difference between where you last saw them and where you need to be for the shot? Um, you know
1: the i guess the the easiest way or two things to think about is like one um a lot of times these deer are bedded in holes or at like the bottom of a vertical bank right so usually the easiest way to get close is you're going to walk up on higher ground above that cut or above that shelf or whatever it is and you can walk up above there because these banks are so steep like dan we're talking like 30 40 feet of pretty much a vertical drop okay you know like you couldn't you couldn't walk up it so when they're at the bottom of that they can't see anything like from the top lip like if you're sitting at the bottom of the grand canyon you know you can't see any of the flats outside of the rim right so if you if you think about it in that regard you know we walk outside of the rim till we get to where we're you know kind of in the ballpark and then it really just is depending upon what terrain is there you know a lot of times we'll use a smaller a smaller like a tributary that flies or or flows into that i say flows there's never any water in it but runs down into that dry creek bed so you can slide down in there and then work your way up the the creek bed to whichever finger you think he's in um we also another thing and i don't know how to i'll do my best to explain this but so let's say that uh imagine, imagine the letter Y, right? Mm-hmm. And so the main draw is the bottom of the Y and then it goes up and that one is formed because two smaller ones run into it. So let's say that the deer is bedded at the top side of the the left side of the Y. Okay. So if I can go in on the top side of the Y on the right and I can work my way down there to kind of like where all those three come together mm-hmm. or where those two come together, I can use that, that um I guess like where those two join, there's going to be a piece of, you know, of dirt or earth or whatever that's, that's taller basically than I am. And so I can ease around that, keeping half of that, that draw covered while I'm looking, you know what I mean? So it's not like I just have to peek my whole body out there to find where he's at, but I can like take a half a step at a time and kind of peek around there until I, I see a butt or I see a nose or, you know, something like that, which will help me where he's at. That's a tough one to explain,
0: but right. No, um, I get it. I don't know if that, I get it. So then, so then as you're going, you know, you start, you're, you're moving in, uh, you've identified where he's bedded. You, you are now kind of closing the distance on him. Uh, do you have to take into consideration at all, like um, changing terrain as far as the wind is concerned? Uh, the you know the or thermals or anything like that, or is the wind how you do it pretty much yeah. consistent?
1: No, um, <laughs> it's a lot like you know where you guys are at in the Midwest. You know the the wind could be blown out of the west at the top where it, where it falls into the creek, and then you go down there and it's blowing you know, the opposite direction up a finger. Um, but it does, it does the same, same exact thing, uh, just because there's so much terrain, unless you get a wind, you know, that's one of those winds that, uh, sucks to shoot in, you know, it's 25 mile an hour, then you don't really have to worry about it. But certainly, um, I always try to stay. So like if I'm working across wind, right? I always try to stay on the downhill side of that crosswind. Does that make sense? So if there's a, if I'm coming up to a draw and I'm working, you know, I'm working my way uphill, up a drainage, and that wind's coming from right to left, I try to stay on the downwind or the downhill side of that because typically uh, that wind will get into that dry creek bed or those fingers and suck it downhill, downstream, if it goes anywhere. Right. Okay. Um,
0: grant, Grant, I
1: can't use that in every situation, but if I can, that's what I try to do.
0: Okay. And then from there, it's just get as close as humanly possible uh, before he sees you or smells you, and and the you know you or whoever you're kind of guiding for has the. Uh, has a a shot that they feel comfortable with
1: yeah you know honestly like i really prefer i mean there's a lot of times where you could get closer to deer i think um but i really feel like that 30 to 40 yard window um like that range like i feel like they'll tolerate a little bit more you know like they at 30 or 40 yards they may jump up and bound you know two or three bounds and look back yeah. Um, and then you, you let it go. But a lot of times you get closer than that, then they bound out further to get that distance and then look back and it's too late. Right. So, um, the other thing is, um, you know, trying to get them up, trying to get them to stand up. Cause a lot of times if you're on your knees in the sagebrush and they're up in a hole or whatever, you can see their head or maybe the top of the back or whatever that is. Um, and so I don't, I haven't found the perfect way to make a deer stand, uh, you know, for a shot, but a lot of times I'm throwing rocks or, you know, whatever you got to do, but I feel like the same thing, you know, at 30 to 40 yards range, if you've got a guy that is, is super comfortable at 30 to 40 yards, um, getting them to stand up is, uh, is good because like. If you're closer and you whistle at them or you do whatever, a lot of times it puts them on edge. And you know, thirty or forty yards, you're you're in good shape a lot of the time. Right. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. um,
0: So you know, obviously, it's not uh, guaranteed every time that that you go out and you know try to spot and stalk something. But no, how do you handle? You know, because obviously you're not the just because you're after one deer doesn't mean there's one deer there. So how do you handle a situation where, you know, let's say you've located this buck but there's either some other bucks or some does in the area um that may be able to pick you off easier than what this buck this buck uh is able to.
1: Yeah, uh and that happens a lot. You know, I mean, especially the first part of September, those bucks are bachelored up, you know, just like the whitetails are everywhere else. And, uh, you know, so you are, you're playing against three, four, five, you know, or more deer um, during that scenario. And a lot of times what I will try to do is if I know, like, say we know this deer's in, you know, in this spot and I know that I can get to him by coming from one direction, but there's other deer there. Like, say this deer's bedded at the top of a draw, and I know there's a couple deer bedded below him. Um, You know, I use that as the same way I would think about the terrain is, okay, it would be ideal for me to go up the bottom of the draw to get there, but I'm going to blow these two deer out. Right. And, you know, so, but what you think about is, okay, if I come up from the bottom of the draw and I blow these deer out, is that bigger deer, the one we want to shoot, is he in a position where he's going to be able to see those deer come out? Or am, if are these deer most likely are they gonna bust up the draw and bust them out or are they gonna get out and go over the top? So that's something you just kinda gotta weigh in, you know, situation by situation and and you know and make the decision. But absolutely you're dealing with a lot of deer. Um and it certainly it doesn't work every time. But uh you know, I don't I don't know. I've messed up so many stocks in my life that uh you, you feel like you're like okay at some point this is going to get easier and eventually it does but i can't tell you how many <laughs> hundreds of blown mule deer stocks that takes so yeah like i think Justin's killed his on the he shot on the fourth day and we had made i don't know we'd made a lot of stocks and we had been in range of pretty much every deer we stocked it was just you know the first one the first morning it was it was a little breezy and he didn't feel comfortable it was kind of a kind of a sharp quartered away shot the deer in his bed, and uh he passed, which is a good decision and um you know it worked out later in the hunt but we did we had we were i don't know we were inside of forty yards on a lot of deer it's just you know those it's not an easy deal and right. part of the you know part of the deal is is accepting the fact that it's not easy and blown stocks are gonna happen right you know i mean that's and so that's the, and there are, there are times too, back to your previous question that there's times when, you know, I'll say, look, that's the deer we want, but this isn't, this isn't the right time. You know, we're, right. if we go in here, we're going to risk blowing him, you know, out or blown to the neighbors or, or, you know, or whatever, whatever the case may be, but, um, you do, you got to pick and choose your battles for sure. Right.
0: So obviously the terrain is a little different, uh, there as opposed to here, um, you know, like 40 acres in Iowa isn't like 40 acres uh, out west. So what are, are these deer going back to the same beds like a whitetail in the Midwest potentially may, or are they, um, you know, just kind of going wherever the, the the first available bed is, or do they have a pattern uh, of certain beds that they like to go to?
1: You know, they have, they certainly have a pattern, but, you know, if you, you say, okay, a white tail in the Midwest, his bedding area is, you know, whatever, this big 100 yard area or 50 yard or even smaller than that. Um, out here, you know, there's a lot of times you will. You'll see the same buck in the same bed for, you know, several days. Um, but they usually, you know, they'll have a drainage or two or three fingers that they like to bed in. And I don't know, you know, if there's, say, six or eight, ten beds that they like. I don't know, you know, that are all good for the sun. I don't know that they don't choose the rest of, you know, okay, well, the wind eliminates these five for me and they go to these. But typically, you know, within, you know, within four or five hundred yards, generally, uh, you know, during the archery season, that early part, you're going to find them within that that region. Gotcha. So...
0: But so then on, the, you know, when you're you're trying to pattern some of these deer, right? So the, the spotting part of it is mostly done for your from your truck. Now, based off historical data on some of the properties that you hunt, um, if you don't see anything that, uh, you know, that you you're not seeing anything from the truck that day do you ever go out and check specific locations that have produced for you in the past, like spot, spot, you know, like stock up on a spot, assuming there's a deer there, but you don't know for sure if there is one or not.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. We actually did that when Justin was here. There's a spot that I had watched a really big deer, you know, like 170 inch mule deer bed in this spot. And you can't see it literally from anywhere. Um, you have to be, you have to go, go down this draw and climb up on this, this uh, just a little ridge that creates kind of a bowl that's about 10 yards wide. Um, But you don't, you never know what's in there, you know, but you do, you have to get in there and sneak up and draw your bow back and peek over the top. (laughs) And, you know, you don't know if there's a doe, if there's a deer, if there's a, you know, what, but there are certainly times, you know, historically good beds that will do that in. Right. So, so
0: have you ever had an a, a specific example of of that working where let's say the year before you killed a buck out of it and then the next year you you know killed another buck out of the same bed or um you know the, the same type of area Yeah <laughs> um we have we had actually had
1: say keep going back to Justin Tump, but we had a deer that was a really big three by three It was probably like 27 28 inches wide and we i I thought so i actually ran into it by accident because i saw a deer from like i don't know 900 or 1000 yards away through the spotting scope bedded in this hole and so we drove you know all the way around made like a four mile loop and you know this it's it's uh it's hard to keep your mark And that's one thing that comes, you know, I feel like I do a pretty good job about it now, but that's one of the hardest things to learn how to do is to find a deer or find a spot and then drive where he's out of sight, you know, and keep that mark. But anyway, I find this deer and so we sneak in there and I see this buck. So we get in there, we make a move on it. Well, it turns out like from where I was at, there was two fingers that were parallel to each other. And the buck the three by three was a different deer than we saw originally um but but anyway that spot where we had that we were like 10 yards and all we could see was the tip of his antlers is like a four foot vertical bank and he was laying right there in a hole and uh so we didn't have a shot but the next year um so that was last year i took a guy and i said you know i've seen a lot of deer in this bed and was telling him the story and i was like we're just gonna go see what happens And so we, we did, I made the same stock that I did with Justin, except for, I learned one thing I can come from the other direction and get about 10 or 15 yards closer. And, uh, so we went in there and there was a buck laying there and he, uh, he actually shot over the top of it. But I mean, essentially the stock itself worked, you know what I mean? And it was a a good mature buck. And, uh, so yeah, that would be one example for sure. I have to top my head that I've got that, that it does work occasionally. Gotcha.
0: So, all right. So now I want to talk about the guy who, you know, like me, right? I'm gonna. I want to come out west and I want to hunt some public ground um, for, let's say, a mule deer or an, or an antelope. And I know th- those two animals are probably completely different as far as maybe where they bed every day, uh, and may, or maybe mm-hmm. I'm wrong. But let's say a guy wants to come out and he wants to hunt some mule deer on some public ground out there. What does the the guy let's say from an aerial map perspective all the way to once he gets out there what does he need to be looking for uh, as far as the the perfect habitat to do what we've what we've just talked about um you know i guess
1: the hardest part about the aerial or i guess the most beneficial part about the aerial map stuff is you're going to look at big draws right and you're going to see all these big nasty, crazy Canyon, look at things. Um, and if there's not a lot of brush in there, uh, what you, what you want to look for is stuff that's going to be shaded, you know, during, during the sun. So, uh, or during the daylight. So, you know, obviously the sun rises in the East sets in the West, but it's uh, it tips a little bit to the South cause we're, you know, in the, in the Northern hemisphere. So pretty much anything that is North facing, um, you know is gonna have shade during the day um, so you're gonna look at you're gonna look at the south side or the south yeah the south side of those ravines you know if they're running you know southwest to northeast you you're only going to look at one side of that right um, because they're not gonna bed in the sunny side so um, you know you can get an idea it's it's tough to look at aerials just because that all that country is so cut up
0: right. but
1: that's one thing you can do. Um, you know, obviously water cause there's not a lot of water out here in, in certain places. Um, but you can find on aerials, you can say, well, that little, there's a little springer, there's gotta be a little pothole of water or a reservoir or something in the bottom of that draw. And that's a, that's always a good place to start, you know, at, at first light. Um, as far as some of that stuff that's got, got bigger you know more sagebrush and that kind of stuff that you can see um some of the good stuff to look at is really is just all in the thickest stuff that you can see um in the bottoms you know like where all the all the water will run down to this this creek bed and you know that's where the tallest sagebrush is so that's a good place to start you know if they can't bed in those cuts in the you know in the drainages and that kind of stuff They'll certainly go for tall sagebrush because that's the next shadiest spot.
0: Okay. So other than, you know, what you just mentioned, is there any, anything else that are some, some awesome tips for the, the guy coming out for his first, uh, let's say like DIY spot and stock hunt uh, for mule deer? Let's just, let's start with the mule deer. Um, any other tips or tricks or even stuff you should never do?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, there's, I personally, I feel like, um, and I hope this doesn't come across as being arrogant, but I really feel like the majority of stocks, I'm not going to say a hundred percent obviously, but I'm saying, you know, three out of four, I feel like the majority of those, if you can find a deer that's bedded, the majority of those stocks can be made successful. Um, and I guess the biggest The one thing, if I would tell anybody that's coming to do this, you know, on their own or with anybody or whatever, um, the biggest, most important piece of this whole thing is having patience because, um, you know, you might find a deer that's bedded in there. And I learned this over lots and lots of trial and error. But if you just go slow and you stop, you know, a stock for a hundred yards, it might you know, if, if you're willing to, to be patient, it might take two, three hours to get inside of, you know, 40 yards. But if you're willing to go that slow and you can make yourself be that patient, I feel like most of those can provide an opportunity. Um, I really feel like people trying to go too fast is the biggest way to blow a stock on a mule deer right? or an antelope for you know, same way. But, you know, because it's hard. I mean, you're in there crawling, you're contorted, you got cactus and you got crap around you and, um, you know, laying on your side and doing all kinds of stuff. Um, it's not comfortable. You know, you get cramps, your muscles quiver, you know, but if you can, if you can make yourself go slow, you know, you might go a couple of feet and stay there for 10 or 15 minutes and but I really think that those deer will tolerate a lot more of somebody that's you know going like a cold snake um than than anything else and I think that's really really important is that guys just understand and it's hard to say practice crawling and stalking on something in your living room but you know I mean like sitting on your knees for an hour at a time you know without moving that's damn near impossible for most of us but But, that can that can have have large dividends
0: right so then you're telling me that uh, it's a patience thing that a majority of the guys who are blowing these stocks when they come out here let's say they they can locate them they can stock up within shooting range or uh, they can locate them but a majority of the, the stocks are blown because people are just going too fast. They're not, um, you know, being observant of the sur- their surroundings. Yeah. you know, And I think, you know,
1: it's hard to explain that because some people would be like, well, no, I was crawling, you know? And it's like, I understand that part, but, um, you know, going slow as far as you might go in there and, and go a little bit and then lay down and stay out of sight for, I don't know if there's a right amount of time, but it might be 10 or 15 minutes to where that deer totally calms down again. Yeah. You know, even if you can't see him watching what's going on, but, and that was a hard thing. That's a hard thing for people to admit. Even me is like, well, I screwed that one up. Cause I, you know, I wanted to get in there and get it done. And that's the, that's the theory or that's the feeling is you're like, Oh, Jesus! deer's in his bed. He's in a good spot. I got to get in there and get it done before he moves or something happens. Right. And, you know, most of the time that deer laid there for a reason in the first couple weeks of September, he doesn't plan on going anywhere, you know, until the, until the sun, you know, makes him move. If he's in a spot where the sun's going to hit his body at 11 or noon. Right. Yeah. Um. But, but yeah, that's a, that's a big thing for sure is just go slow, be patient. Um, some, another way, you know, I talked about throwing rocks to get deer to stand up. Ideally the very best way is, uh, lay there until they stand up on their own. Um, you know, but, but who can, who can make themselves do that? But, uh, but really that's the, that's the best way. And, you know, it's like, if you get in there that far, if you get into bow range and you've got a spot where that deer is going to be, you've done the hard work already, Yeah, you know? So if you can make yourself be patient, even if you're just sitting there with your arrow knocked and your, your you know, release is clipped on, if you're going to sit there and wait out that deer, your chances of success skyrocket.
0: Okay. So then so what about shooting a deer while it's bedded down? Is, is that... I mean, is that a bad thing or, you know, is that an unethical thing to do?
1: No, I have absolutely no problem with shooting deer bedded. Um, you know, it's, like, it's funny. A lot of the networks don't allow you to show a deer being shot in its bed. And, oh. um, yeah, yeah. I, I want to say both outdoor network and sportsman's channel, perhaps, um, don't, don't allow you to air a deer or an animal being shot in its bed Uh, sportsman's channel used to they may still but uh, i know for sure that uh, the outdoor channel doesn't so why do you um, think that i'm pretty positive they don't you know i i really don't know um i know that there have been been some people that have taken some heat for shooting bedded stuff from you know from uh, I don't know if they're anti or you know what they are about how it's it's unethical or it's you know unfair or whatever the deal is. Personally, I find it as a bunch of crap. Right. But right. Um, you know, I mean, it it kind of go This is kind of off topic, but similar. You know, people are like, well, it's you know, it's not right to shoot them while they're sleeping or you know whatever the deal is, and it's like, well technically it's, you know, it's less stress on the animal if I shoot him while he's in his bed instead of get him up and he's running, he's spooked or whatever. Right. Um, I had a conversation with a guy not long ago about suppressors. Um, you know, suppressors are, are legal to hunt with in Wyoming, you know, if you've got the right paperwork and that kind of thing. And, uh, somebody was like, well, that's just, that just doesn't seem right. And I was like, so let me give you a scenario, which actually happened. um you know we had a elk hunter who get into a herd of elk, and there's a big bull and a bunch of other you know smaller bulls that are feeding around there at like five hundred yards, and so we end up shooting the big bull and um, the other ones when the gun goes off, they just pick their head up and they're like, "Huh, what was that?" And then they go back to eating right so there was no pressure. I mean, those elk didn't take off. They didn't spook, nothing. So there's less pressure on those animals, less strain, you know. So I have a hard time understanding how that's not more ethical. Right. Uh, but, um, but, yeah, anyway, back to the bedded thing. I'm all for it. If you've got a clear shot at the vitals, I am um, I am all for it. Justin shot his deer bedded. Nice. Um, shot a couple. We shoot a couple every year that are in their bed. Awesome.
0: So, yeah, I agree. It's yeah. one of those things where if you can do it, it's all about the perfect opportunity. And the more you wait, I feel, waiting for a deer to stand up, the better chance you have of it busting out of there and running. Right. Yep. Gotcha.
1: Yeah. And this the same. I mean, I feel like the same thing applies. You know, if you've got a you got a good shot while he's bedded, you know, perfect. You got a good shot while he's standing, perfect. You know, if it's a questionable shot, it doesn't matter if he's bedded or he's standing. You know what I mean? Right. Just don't take the questionable ones. Take the good ones, and, and you'll be in good shape.
0: Right. But So what's the um, – and this is now me just wanting some information. What's the, the mule deer population like out there?
1: Uh, you know, in our area, it's, it's really good. Um, the you, You'll hear lots of stuff about, you know – cwd and you hear you know the winters um the west half of the state did get pounded um but there's still going to be good deer there because you know that's like the the big storms are going to kill the old ones and the young ones and the healthy you know middle-aged bucks are going to survive um but overall the the herd is is growing it's grown significantly, you know, at least in our areas, I guess is what I can speak to. Uh, the last four or five years, they've actually added some tags. Um, so it's good. It's stable. It's
0: healthy. Um, but overall, it's uh, it's doing well. In uh, the area where you outfit, let's say a guy wants to come there and maybe hop on some public land or even call you up. Uh, is Is your area a... A general tag or do you have to put points in or is it a can you can you draw year one
1: uh you can um you can usually it's it's like it would take if you wanted to be sure about it it would take a point uh a, a point or more um you know essentially to guarantee a tag part of that reason is because there's not a great deal of accessible public land where we're at okay so not a lot of guys apply, you know, because they, they don't have as many places to hunt, you know, like in areas that have national forest or giant BLM parcels or, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So, but there, I mean, there is a little bit, um, there's definitely other areas of the state
0: that are a little bit more friendly
1: um, to, to having more public land options. Right, right.
0: But so are the uh, public land – The is the public land in your guys' area? Uh, so it sounds like it's just minimal. It's not
1: it's not that there's not a lot. There's just not a lot of access to it. Okay. Right? So a lot of it's uh, – Checkerboard. You know, county road runs through here and, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, you can't cross the private to get to the public and that kind of deal. Right. So, but, uh, you know, a little bit – a little bit further south, a little bit further west. There's, there's a little bit more, um, more
0: access. Right, right. So let's say uh, today someone uh, ha- is is like, man, I gotta go out and I gotta try doing some of this uh, this mule deer, uh, you know, you know, spot and stock mule deer, or even spot and stock uh, antelope hunting. And they say, I want an outfitter. What's the best way to get a hold of you at Bighorn? Uh,
1: best way this time of year is, is definitely email. Um, that's just Dustin D U S T I N at bighorn outfitters with an S dot com. Um, you know, or they can go to the website and, uh, and call, but definitely this time of year, we're not in service a lot. So email is, is the
0: best. Right. Okay. And I had uh, another <laughs> question that I just, that kind of just popped up. Everything you talked sure. about today as far as you know the spotting portion of it the stalking portion of it um do you think that those principles could work for whitetails in states like north south dakota nebraska and maybe even into kansas where there's you know people do a lot less uh tree stand hunting
1: yeah yeah absolutely without a doubt um you know i was I was listening to your show what you went. So you went to the sand hills in Nebraska, right?
0: Right. Absolutely.
1: And so, um, yeah, I actually, uh, I was with Angie Denny. Um, we were in Nebraska a couple of years ago, a few years ago. Um, and she ended up shooting like 160 inch whitetail spot in stock, that same kind of deal It was, you know, there's some crick bottoms and her dry crick bed kind of deals that are brushy and, uh, we just use the terrain to get in there. But I really think that if anybody, you know, you think about the wind, you think about the terrain, and if you can watch them bed, um, I think that that's a, a fantastic avenue. Uh, I think it's really, I think it's a underutilized uh, method for killing whitetails in those states. You know, obviously, you got deer going to a giant woodlot and bed. It makes it a, a bit tougher. But uh, in those states, like you're talking about and where you were at, I definitely think those principles apply. Nice,
0: perfect, perfect. Well, you you heard you heard it here first, folks. So, I tell you what, Mister Dustin DeCrew, I uh, thanks for coming on the podcast today and uh, talking spot and stock with us.
1: Yeah, no, Dan, I appreciate it. Uh, I've actually, I've been looking forward to this one. Um, you know, I get a I download all the podcasts so that I can listen to them in my truck whenever i've got hunters and antelope blinds and and that kind of thing but i've been looking forward to this one for a while because it's uh you know you don't get a you don't get a talk strategy to people that actually want to hear it all the time right <laughs> you right. know so Not but just I've been
0: s- i've been looking forward to it customers saying oh i really don't care how you do it just put me on deer yeah exactly exactly cool so yeah well Good yeah, luck but, this upcoming uh, season, fun. and I, I wish uh, you and all your clients success, man.
1: Well, thanks, man, and uh, I wish the same for you out there in Iowa and uh, with the with the new edition and and all that good stuff too. So I look forward to seeing some photos of a giant Iowa whitetail.
0: And that brings us to an end of today's podcast. Huge shout out to Dustin DeCrew of bighorn outfitters for coming on the podcast and chit chatting with us and educating us on spot and stock methods uh hopefully you guys found that educational Uh, i know i had a blast uh, listening to it and uh someday man i want to get out to a place where that's how they hunt because i think that's very primitive uh even more so than the old tree stand hunting Uh, and i think that if you can spot and stock and be successful i think then at you can call yourself a real bow hunter at that point. Um, not necessarily. I don't really know what that means, but uh, if you can become well-rounded and be successful in all areas, I think that's just that's just kick-ass. But uh, thanks, Justin, for coming on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Huge shout-out to all the partners of this podcast: Ozonics, Gearhead, Wasp, Exodus ripcord arrow rest deer lab hunting software bighorn outfitters lone wolf tree stands and exodus outdoor gear and the trail cameras guys be sure to take advantage i mean it's buying season right now so if you're looking for discounts on all of the products out there any products uh, my partner's are offering great discounts, especially Wasp, Ozonix, Deer Lab, Exodus, and Lone Wolf. Um, Please be sure to uh, take advantage of those and uh, save a little cash on the side. Other than that, huge shout out to each and every one of you for taking time to download and listen to this podcast. Again, remember to uh, go and pay attention and listen to the Land and Legacy podcast that I put out, Launched 4. Please go sign up for the National Deer Alliance. Uh, Become educated, and uh, you know, just be a more active participant in uh, you know uh, being a well-rounded sportsman. And if you're going to be in a tree, guys, wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.
1: Thank you.